all right, our special guest this week on Nine Tech Not Out is uh, a true England legend, uh, one of the biggest names of the modern game, if you're of a certain age uh, and can remember the wonderful Ashes series of 2005, which people still call the greatest series ever. Uh, one of the main protagonists of that series was our very special guest this evening, Mr. Steve Harmson. Steve, welcome along. Thanks for having me. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real pleasure. Um, can I just start with that? Because I've got nothing but incredible memories of that time. I was at Lord's uh, that day. I've never been, I mean, I'm mad about my cricket. I've never been so excited, so pumped up for a, an England series as I was that time. And I can remember the atmosphere at Lord's was like nothing else that day. And then I think it was the first time they were allowing cameras in the long room and it was beamed out to the, to the ground the pictures of the England team coming through, led by Vaughan, and that first day uh, featured your bowling as much as anything else. Um, can you talk us through what it was like to be part of that? It was the, the the long room was a buzz of it was just noise that we normally have. Ben of mine, so I was being my fourth time, fourth test in the long room. And normally, when you sort of come down the stairs, you've got to move people out the way to get to the field. It's like you just like, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me, sir, can I get to the field? I'm actually going to be playing in a second here. <laughs> and that's what you do with the long room. It's such a ridiculously unique place where you have to you have to ask people to move out the way of you getting onto the, the field of play and the cricket. And it's, you know, the traditions that come with it. But this was totally different. It was roped off. It was heaving from the minute you, know, you went out for warm-ups. It was rammed, the long room. Um, and the noise, the atmosphere, the buzz is like, I keep, uh, we didn't recognize it. Cause it's like, we're not used to like posh people cheering. Yeah. <laughs> normally it's, it's just like a different, different cheer. Wasn't it? We weren't used to that. Normally the, you'd, you'd walk through them on the way to practice and they'll be like quizzically looking at you thinking, Who, who's he? Uh, who's he? <laughs> oh no, I've picked him again. And they did say that to me. Actually, somebody did actually have a go at me at one time when I came in with my bat saying, I can't believe they've picked you again. So yeah, it was a, it's a different place, the long room, but what an atmosphere that, that morning was, the buzz, the hype of around it. It was, you know, we come off the back of a one day series that was like no other against Australia and, and Bangladesh. And we'd gone 18 months ready for this, this moment. This is our moment. You mentioned Michael leading us down, but we built that. We built that from the Caribbean in 2004 all the way through to not losing a test match throughout that whole summer, 7-0, seven, seven test matches. We went to that South Africa, first team to win in Africa after apartheid, and then to come back, you know, be ready for Bangladesh and then obviously the big one. And we were ready for it. And, you know, Michael leading us out, long rooms go mental, the whole, you know, Lords is going mental and, were there in the middle, ready to go. There was that famous ball to Ricky Ponting, which kind of set the tone for the whole series. Uh, and uh, yeah, just tell us, did, did you have that in the, in the back of your mind to send that one down at him at some point? No, there's a lot made of that start, the six overs from my end, six overs from Matthew's end. And, and then when Freddie and Simon came on for like the next two or three overs, up until just after drinks, probably the first hour of that of that test match, there was a lot made of the aggression. But when you look at it, really, in the reality, the only thing I did was bowl bouncers. Simon Jones bowled at 90-odd mile an hour. 
And Freddie bowled at 90 mile an hour. We were, we were aggressive bowlers. We were an aggressive team. Uh, it wasn't intentional that we were going to be in the face and we weren't in the face. There's a lot made of, you know, getting out of Australia and being aggressive towards them. We were, we were aggressive with, with, you know, the way we bowled, but not in anything, anything other, any, anything sinister. I thought when you look back at it, you look at that first hour, your realization of Australia, I thought were more nervous than what we were. Um, were, were they thinking this is the first time in 20 years we could potentially lose the Ashes because Langer gets hit on the arm second ball um, I hit Matt Hayden within the first three overs and then Hoggy gets him out and then Ponting gets hit on the head Matthew Hayden never gets hit on the head in Test Match Cricket I think Ricky Ponting's probably only been hit in the face or hit in the head twice in his whole career of 160-odd test matches. And the ball to Langer was just his little tuck off the shot on the way he runs down to flying leg. That was his normally favourite shot. So I think that the you know, what happened in that first hour was Australia being more nervous than what, what we were. And then, you know, we, we bowled them out for 190 and then we go and bat. And at the end of the day, a lot of people say, oh, you got five for 40, whatever. Great to be on the honours board. And it was great until Glenn McGrath got the ball in his hand. Because by the end of the day, he had five for about 15. and made my five for 40 feel like about 550. So <laughs> it was a mixed emotions at the end of the day. We were back up against, the, up against the wall. But right at the end of the day, we seen somebody come into the party, into English cricket, and announce himself. And that was Kevin Peterson. And the way he batted and performed at Lords was a, a, just a little bit of a, you know, a, a little shot across the bow to Australia to say, you know, we've got somebody special here. How did he fit into the, uh, well, uh, I mean, as you say, that was kind of his arrival. He made his debut on the South Africa tour just prior yeah. to that. Um, did he sort of announce himself in the dressing room as kind of like, I'm Kevin Peterson, here I am, or was he a, a, a maybe a more humble type character back then? No, he, I, Kevin, there's there's a lot, a lot of negative not a negativity around Kevin. Kevin is a good, is a very good guy in Kevin Peterson. He is a, Kevin's a, Kevin's a nice guy. I, I've always getting on well with Kevin. Kevin came into the dressing room, very respectful of the people he was coming into the dressing room to play with. Um, I think if you got Kevin's respect, I think you were, you were, you were halfway there with, with him from a personal point of view. Um, I thought if you treat Kevin where, the way he was you know, meant to be treated with respect, um, and you understood the other side of let's not, you know, you know, I'm sugarcoated. Kevin Peterson was born and raised in South Africa, uh, you know, different, different broken English to the way we sp speak. Some kind, some people can say you know, the ego, the arrogance, and everything that goes with it. That's just the way the way the sort of English South African vocabulary is. You know, Kevin, Kevin has never seen anybody work as hard as what Kevin did. Kevin loved playing cricket for England. Kevin was a humble guy. He is a humble guy. He's thankful for his surroundings. I know that for a fact because I've worked with him closely when we worked at Talk Sport against India, along with the likes of Darren Goff, Mark Butcher, Mark Nicholas, and, and Gareth Batty, Matt Pryor. You know, the, he is Kevin. I've got a lot of time for Kevin Peterson. And I didn't know the Kevin Peterson dressing room after 2009. And maybe there wasn't as respectful players come in when you know, the older generation had gone. But the people that played with Kevin when he first came in the dressing room, um, they got him, they understood him, and they knew what buttons to press to make sure they got the best out of him. And I think that was evident to see. 
Um, but he announced himself. Boy, did he. You know, I was at the other end both times when he got 50. Just shows you how badly we battered if Kevin batted at five and he got to 50 and number 10 was in. But I remember when he hit McGraw over his head um, into the long room and he, oh, we were looking for twos every time he was on strike. And, you know, you shout and run and I'm going, well, I can't really say what I said because you're going to go live on radio. But I was like, <laughs> he, nobody does this to Glenn McGrath. And Kevin Peterson was probably the first Englishman, other than Michael Vaughan in the, in the Ashes before that, that played the ball and not the man, didn't have any psychological baggage of getting beat up by Australia. And I think when that happened, I think not only did Australia sit up and think, wow, what are we going to do with this guy? But I think the realisation of the English public realised we have got somebody special here because he didn't just hit McGraw over his head, he slogged through that worn into the stand. Um, and it was the sign for, for what was going to be in six weeks' time. Um, you know the, the the final the finale of the ashes. So so, so back to you. <laughs> um, yeah. Darren mentioned you know that 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 ball to Ricky Ponting at Lords. Um, the ball for me was the um, the one that you're not really that well known for the the slower ball to uh, yeah. to Michael Clark, which done him all ends up, didn't it? A crucial part of the game as well. It was that that second Test match changed before the Test match. It was you know. Honestly, the roller coaster of emotion. We go into we go into the team room two days before the Edge Baston Test match. The England captain has said, "Look, we're sticking by each other. We've done this through thick and thin, and we are now we are now going to have to change our a little bit change our game plan towards Australia." The first one of McGraw, we're going to have to go at three and a half and over. And we're looking around the room, going. 2020, we're going to be playing 2020 against Warner McGraw here. This is not going to end well, I don't think. And it all changed when Glenn stood on the ball. When Glenn stood on the ball, gets injured. You know, there's, you know, you say there's, you, know, you don't want to see a fellow professional get injured. But when McGraw did that, there was 10 Englishmen in South Africa doing cartwheels for what he did for us at Lords. And we go into the test match with no McGraw, Ponton, Bowling on the flats wicket that Edgbaston's produced in 20 years. And we got off to a great start. 408 and 80 overs in a day. So we, we took either what the captain was wanting to say. And then we put pressure on, on, on Australia. And it came right down to the end of, I think it was day three or day four. Day three, I think it was. And there wasn't a lot left in the tank. You mentioned about, you know, Warren came in, swung his bat for a bit. Do we take the extra half an hour? Do we not? Do we need to take the extra half an hour? Well, you can never be sure in England when it comes to the weather. So Michael thought it was another statement of intent that we take the extra half an hour because we feel as though we can knock them over. And what a, you know, what a message that would be. And Warren and, and Clark batted brilliantly. Yeah, Warren batted brilliantly throughout the series. Um, he just bowled better and got 40 wickets. So how he was on the loser's side, I've got no idea. But we get to that 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 point where there's two overs to an over to go, and I literally had not nothing left. I had Marcus Triscothic first slip, Andrew Flintoff second slip. As I've both said on record, I had the worst slow ball in the history of the game, and I did. Uh, it was awful. <laughs> and the only person that hasn't picked it is I can't remember the middle order batsman in at India who hit it back to me for, for me hat trick the year earlier, and. Michael Clark, because I tried two bounces in the over to try and hit down leg side, get Warren on strike. Because we knew if we got Warren out, 
I didn't believe we could get Clark out. He's batting that well. If we got worn out, then we've got Clark and two bowlers the next morning. Kasparovic has just fallen over the first ball in the first innings. He's like a walking wicket. So we basically just got to get Dizzy out. And all of a sudden, we get... I get to the point where it's like, I've got nothing left. You're throwing everything at them. Lens balls aren't working. Bounces aren't working. I'll try the slower ball. And um, Michael Clark played all around it. And he played, and I mean all around it. He played about four shots at it, missed everyone. And the euphoria of going off the field with Clark not coming out the next morning with Warren and Brett Lee with, you know, with the bowlers to come. Um, we thinking, right, we're going to be on Broad Street by half 11, quarter to 12 at the latest tomorrow, <laughs> celebrating in the walkabout that it's 1-1 and you've got McGrath in hospital. So we're back in the series. You mentioned about uh, Glenn McGrath turning his ankle. Um, he, he trod on a cricket ball, I believe. He did, um, yeah. It was well placed. <laughs> it was... But it wasn't, um, or, or correct me if I'm wrong, but these days, whether it's county or whatever level, football is quite often um, a, a sort of a warm-up to a game. Um, was, you know, we were playing football back in those days or was it a bit before when that came in? No, we didn't. We didn't play football in them days. The fun police were, the fun police were out then and we didn't play, we didn't hardly get to play football then. So, but they were playing Aussie rules. We were messing about with the Aussie rules ball. And I think that's what Glenn had. I think he was messing about with the Aussie rules ball and he's just uh, balls, he leaned too far back to try and catch one. Backpedaled a little bit and stood on the ball. So it was well placed by whoever from the English <laughs> team put it in that spot to get him to there. But joking aside, it was you know, what he did to us at Lords to get to that point, which meant they had to bring him back at Old Trafford. They had, they had no, no other way of getting through. They had to bring McGrath back because we have... Pearson had dealt with with, with Jason Gillespie. He didn't have his zip, the, the, the back of a length ball that was that, that met him the great bowler he was. Um, Peterson had his number. He had Kasparovic's number. They had tier two that were looking, we looked into play. The bowled Lee into the ground. The you know, Shane's bowling from one end. They had to bring they had to bring Glenn McGrath back for Old Trafford. And and that again helped England because, you know. Even a even a 70, 75% fit, Glenn McGrath's a good bowler. But you know, England were we were right back in the contest and our, our tails were up and we knew that we you got them into the latter part of the day, we could cash in and score some runs. How did you get on with the, the Aussies off the pitch? Was that still the era of having a beer afterwards and uh, you know getting on with them or was it kind of now we got on with them? Now we got on with them. We got on with them well after Edge Baston. They came in the dressing room, you know, the likes of Gilchrist and Warren. You know, when you played Australia, you knew you were in a contest when you were on the field. But you know, the names I mentioned before, the, the, all these players, they're good blokes. They're good blokes with the same thing in common, trying to do the best for their team. As soon as the white line's done, you uh, you you come back in and. You know, you become you become just blokes again. And the one thing, the, the one thing about good thing about that series, both teams were a decent set of blokes. There wasn't any real animosity. Somebody wasn't rubbing somebody else up the wrong way. I know Ricky's Ricky's team got a lot of stick for being too matey with England. That's complete nonsense. That is complete nonsense. Australia were beaten by a good England side, um, and we got the rub of the green more often than not. You know, little things like McGrath. You know, Gary Pratt at, at, at Trent Bridge. Um, Steve Buckner was our 
one of our best friends, because every time he seemed to fall asleep in the middle, we'd appeal and he'd give it out. <laughs> even it hit, hit the middle of Damian Martin's bat twice. So he had a shocker, Damian Martin. I can't believe that. He's hit, he's hit the inside of his bat. One of them actually, Old Trafford off me, hit the middle of his bat, hit them on the pad. We've all gone up and appeal. And Steve Buckner, I think he was asleep, woke him up, stuck his finger up and said out. See you later. So the good job DRS wasn't around then because we might not have got over the line. But little things like that went in our way. But it was a great series. Was he on duty when you were taking Wiggins in the West Indies the year before? No, he wasn't. He, he wasn't. Fortunately, he wasn't. Fortunately, we had Daryl... Daryl Harper, who's a lovely man, Daryl Harper, great fella, but not the greatest umpire in the world. <laughs> and um, he he was he was a good friend of mine, to be fair, going in, in and around that series. Him and Daryl Hare, Daryl Hare later on, he warned me off in uh, Antigua when Lara got 400. It's the only thing that Andrew Flintoff has never forgiven me for. I have done things in practical joke. I've, I've roomed with Andrew for 15 years. And I've done things to Andrew Flintoff that you know, aren't, pub aren't for public notification. But the one thing he will never, ever forgive me for is getting warned off. And I had three fourths, two for 98 of 38 overs. And I got warned off by Daryl Hare on day three because I'd, I'd been warned on day one, which I'd completely forgot all about. And then Andrew Flintoff had to finish my over. He had similar figures, two for 98. And the, his first ball went for four. Got the guard up, went for 100. I am absolutely wetting myself <laughs> mid-off because they are now about 720 and we're never going to bowl again on this trip and this tour's finished after this. Um, and he's, that's the only thing he's never, ever forgiven me for on that West Indian trip. So, And some of the things that I have done to him, you, you know, it's just, well, we can't, we can't talk about that. But no, it's, uh, and so Darrell was a friendly umpire to us as well. On a, on a more serious note, these days, a lot is made of players' well-being and mental health. You were one of the first to kind of raise yeah. this at, 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 at the at international level, yourself and, and, and Tress Kothic as well. Um, was that a hard thing? To, were you encouraged to, to talk about it or did you make a point of, of, of bringing it up and dealing with it in a public way yourself? Not in a public way, I must admit. I did talk a lot about it to my teammates and people inside knew what was going on. There was a lot of... The homesickness tag was was a very good crutch for me. I, I, I didn't mind that because I knew there was... Underneath, there was a lot of underlying problems that were going on that I did not, I did not need anybody else in the, in the wider general public to know about. Um, Marcus, you know... Yeah, poor poor fella couldn't couldn't carry on. Jonathan Trott couldn't carry on. Mine was the other way a little bit. And I, I struggled in between times. When I was on the field, this was my stage. I was the actor and I was in the, the feature film, and that's what I needed. The problem I had was off the field. I wasn't getting myself the right preparation. You know, I wasn't you know doing the couldn't couldn't prepare the best as I could to get myself on the field. And you know, I should have stopped, but I, I always believed I'd have been the first one. And I was like, you know what? If, if I say something here, I never play again. Yeah. And I couldn't have that. I wanted to, I wanted to play. I was sitting, you know, I was, I was in Johannesburg pre South Africa, pre 2005, um, on our way to Port Elizabeth. I haven't trained for the best part of three days. 
I'm hyperventilating, panic attack, anxiety's going through the roof. And I'm now basically in a departure lounge, crying my eyes out, not knowing what's wrong with me. And I, do I go to Port Elizabeth to go back to London? If I go back to London, I never play cricket again. And I am number one ranked bowler in the world at that time. Which way did I go? And that was where I was, I was at at some point in my career. So I managed to manage the anxiety a lot better, you know, medication, which I'm still on now. And I didn't want to be the first one. And that's why I've got so much time. Marcus Truscothic is one of the best cricketers I've ever played with. Um, and for what he did and came out and came through, I was happy to say I was there for him in Australia when he was going through it to help him. Um, what small little help that I could possibly be to basically sit there and say, Matt, I understand everything you're going through with, with, you know, the, the, because he knew I, I knew what he was going through and it wasn't just somebody putting their arm around the shoulders and saying, you know, when you say, Oh, I know what you're going through when you got no idea. Um, and the right thing was Marcus going home and, um, it was a, it was a difficult time. What we've got now, I understand rest and rotation policy. Not a big fan of it in a way that I believe if you're getting rested and you're getting rotated, well, then you get them out of the bubble. And I know it's easier said than done. But if if I'm not if you're not going to play somebody, send them home, get them away from that, and get them to recharge their batteries before they actually go back in. But by not making them play and having them sit on the sideline and go through the whole, still in the the environment. I still don't think they're getting the, you know, I don't think that's that's helping either. So I don't think there's a right way. I don't think there's a wrong way. We are in the middle of a, coming at the end, hopefully, of a pandemic that will see a bit more flexibility um, because they, that's what you have to do. The one thing I will say is, having had a daughter born on the 4th of December and in the middle of an ashes trip, not being able to get home to see her, and I've seen her for the first time on the 26th of February, um, when the players are saying they're going to go to the ashes and they're not going to let the families go, I can understand them standing firm now and saying, well, no, nah, I'm not prepared to, um, we're not prepared for this. So from a mental point of view, I think that something needs to dramatically change on that aspect, because if not, I'm not sure I'd go and play. On a lighter note, do you regret not pursuing your dream of being a professional footballer? Uh, no, there was never a chance of me being a professional footballer. I was somebody who could stop average players playing. Um, I could kick anybody that moved at my pace. The problem was not many people did move at my pace. And then <laughs> when I got 15, a realisation of I could bowl faster than I can chase anybody um, in and around my age group or even 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 further down the field at, at, at a different age group or an adult level, then my football dream was, was quickly closed the door uh, and the door was closed on it very, very quickly and cricket became my natural avenue of, of employment. But I love the game of football. Still do. I love the grassroots level of it. I'm back. I couldn't bring myself to watch the Premier League. I even struggle. I've struggled with the Euros, a little bit of overkill on, on the football, the way it's played now. I watch non-league football. I'll go all over Northumberland and Durham watching non-league football every night of the week. But I cannot... Uh, I can't be bothered with these, some of these prima donnas that play the game now. Ashington's your team, isn't it? It is, yeah. I had a brief spell of managing it when um, three, four years ago, um, and there was a lot of politics involved with 
the the chairman and uh, you know he's, he'd be, as we got our, our relationship got on he's a good friend of mine still is um but he climbed the chain of the labor party he became the labor party chairman with jeremy corbyn and there was things going on that i wasn't involved i wasn't in, enjoying and i i decided that because of the relationship with the, the local government the local council and the football club it was best me not to be there anymore. So I was devastated not to be there anymore. And I'd love to do something like that again, if time was to, you know, if I had time to do it. But they're doing all right. They're rebuilding. They're getting a bit like Durham, the old cricket team. They had a few money money issue, uh, issues, but they've got themselves on a stable foot. They've got a good chairman, got a fantastic manager, good bunch of young lads. And fingers crossed that they'll do well again and start getting back to where they need to be. Now, coming right up to date, you are a bit of a media guru. You've got uh, podcasts and you do your talk sport, like you said. And um, I've just noticed that you are now on Instagram as well. So you are properly down with the kids. Yeah, down with the kids. And it's because <laughs> of my kids that I'm down with the kids because they keep telling me I've got to get on it. Yeah. So I'm not a big social media fan. I don't need Michael Vaughan to tell us every time he's gone to the toilet. I'll keep <laughs> pee every time he's every time he shanked one into the woods. Um, but you know, look, it's, it just seems to be the way the world's going. I'm doing this YouTube stuff with my good, good pal, John Norman at TalkSport, from TalkSport. We're having a laugh. We put John, we talked to Vaughny, had a great chat with Vaughny about the old Trafford test match. Um, and Butch about 2003, we've got a special one coming up next week talking about to Ian Bell about his Ashes exploits, bearing in mind won it five times. So there's a lot to go about with, with Ian Bell talking about England beating Australia. But I enjoy talk. I love talking about the game because when I came out of the game in 2013, I went into football because I hated cricket. I resented cricket. I couldn't stand it anymore. Um, and it, it took me a while to get my head back around that, you know, why I was in the game and I enjoyed it. And now you know, commentating on the England is brilliant. It's, it's fascinating, especially red and white ball contrast to where the sides are. Um, and in the next eight months, there's going to be some unbelievable cricket played by the England cricket team, whether oh, yeah. it's India, whether it's the World Test Championship, England players going to the IPL, then the Ashes, then the IPL again, with England players involved in it. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be a, a good eight, nine months for, for anybody that, that loves English cricket. You must have been close to a recall this week with the, the entire squad being <laughs> isolating. Yeah, I must admit, I've just texted Huggy and uh, I was with Matthew Hoggard yesterday. And you know, if you look at us, me and Huggy now, you, you look at it, you're looking at it. If you're going to bring us to out of retirement, you're going to have to get a marquee for, <laughs> for Huggy. Yeah, I'm probably a, a, only an X short of, of uh, the next shirt down for Hog. We've, we've put a bit of weight on. Freddie looks a million dollars. Freddie's gone the opposite way. Andrew Flintoff, you know, he, he liked the drink, he liked a, a hamburger and a pizza, and, you know, he's two or three stone overweight when he played professional sport. Now he's a TV star, he's, you know, he's four stone lighter, he doesn't drink, and he, he, he seems to be the model citizen. So, you know, the four stone that he's lost, me and Hoggard have definitely, definitely found it between us. I think he's got <laughs> a little bit more than me um, with the venture that he's doing. He's doing Huggies Grills, which I yeah. tell you what, it's brilliant. It's worth... It's worth watching. It's worth getting. Even if you could get to, you know, up to Rutland Water, what a fantastic place that is. What he's got on there on the water teaches you how to cook your barbecued food. 
And and if the proof's in the pudding, well, you look at Huggy, he's eaten quite a bit of it during <laughs> lockdown. We did mention about being in the o- coming back in the ODI squad, but if Broad and Anderson can't get, they were having a joke on, on social media, if them two can't get back in, I'm not sure. I think England might be down to their 25th or 26th 11 before me and Huggy get a, a recall on that one. <laughs> So go on, give us. Uh, I'll, I'll put the links across the bottom of the screen, Ben. But um, what what are the um, what are the shows that we've got to look out for for you on uh, on Talksport, etc.? Well, uh, it, it's YouTube. You've got um, you've got uh, Michael Vaughan's just gone out. Oh, the we we have a, a program called Test of Time, which is I talk to a former international great about their time during a specific Test match. Um, we did Ross Taylor. First up, which was a test that me and Huggy got left out of, off the back of it. Ross Taylor's first test match, 100. Vaughan, uh, a brilliant 100 against Australia in 2005. Oh, um, the third test in Old Trafford. Um, Ian Bell is going to pick a, a test match um, from his 2013 Ashes. Uh, brilliant. Uh, Brad Hogg talks about the, the Melbourne test match uh, a few years ago. But the best one, I think... Uh, is Mark Borcher talking about Sydney in 2003. Not only the context of the game and what that game was, just the way Butch delivers it is fantastic. Celebration afterwards, talking about Michael Vaughan's 100 inside that. And then we go through the Andy Carrick getting seven wickets and never playing for England again. But it was the game where Steve Waugh got 100 in that two-session period when they thought he was going to be, that was going to be his last test match. Nasser Hussein trying to waste time, Richard Dawson bowling the last ball when he's on 98. Nobody left the SCG. It was a magnificent test match and Butch describes it unbelievably well. No, he's a good, uh, he's a fantastic supporter of ours and uh, we, we thank him for all that he does for us. And as you say, always brilliant value, lots of amazing stories. And, um, and then he goes and pulls the guitar out and, uh, and then takes it to another level. He does, yeah. I had a benefit, yeah, benefit, yeah, in 2013, and he came up and played on my golf day. And one of the one of the bands I've loved, I've, I love Paul Rogers. Paul Rogers is one of my favorite. I still think he is the best vocalist that I've ever been in music. He's brilliant. Plus, he's a he's from the north. He's not quite a Geordie. He's from Middlesbrough. Um, but we had bad company, and we had an Irish guy called Ronan Kavanagh who Butch has become very good friends with. I think he's out in New Zealand now. So we had we had the bad company lot. You know, Rick Willis was playing. It was great fun. We had them on at the on the night time. And they asked me to if I wanted to sing, because I've got them on because my dad was a massive free and bad company fan. So I've destroyed All Right Now, which is a you know, <laughs> an easy song to sing. And then I looked at Butch and I'd had a few and I said, come on, do you fancy singing? And I could see Ronan trying to sort of prompt Butch on what he was going to sing. I think he sang, sang Shooting Star, I think. And he, after about literally three lines, Ronan's looking at me with like open eyes as to like, wow. Yeah. You know, basically, he's done this before because uh, he, he was waiting. I think Ronan was behind him was, was sort of prompting him on not the next line, but the, the other, the more difficult lines that are coming through. And Butch didn't need him. And after a while, he just got on with playing guitars. And Butch, he was up there for about two or three songs, I think. And he was brilliant. Honestly, it was a, one of the best nights we've, we've ever had when it, from like a, you know, a benefit point of view because one of my best mates, you know, sang, sang at me, me, me testimonial night and it was, uh, it was fantastic. 
all right. Well, we better wrap it up and let you get on. Uh, I know you're a busy man. There's lots going on in the world of cricket at the moment. But um, Steve, absolute pleasure talking to you. Lots of great stories. And uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, we'll catch up soon. Uh, brilliant. Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. All the best.